Science Chatters. Hello and welcome to Science Chatters, the podcast from the Science Communication Unit here at UWE Bristol. I'm Andrew Glester. I'm a lecturer in science communication here at UWE. I'm Claire Wilkinson. I'm the co-director of the Science Communication Unit and an associate professor in science communication. And I'm Emma Whitecamp, the other co-director of the Science Communication Unit and also an associate professor in science communication. So this is episode three. I don't know if we're going to keep numbering them, but I do want to keep giving them names. And we've had the Arctic, we had Pooh and Wee, and this I would like to call unconventional robots. I think that works, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> we have such a range of subjects that we're covering now, don't we? These titles are, are proving tricky. They are, really. But the reason for the title is that we have two interviews provided to us by our wonderful students from the MSc in Science Communication. We have Gemma Kerr, who is bringing us an interview from the Unconventional Computing Lab here at UWE, and it's all about unconventional computing. I'm going to be honest, and I didn't know that unconventional computing was a thing. But later in the podcast, we will also hear from Chloe Rakes, who is looking at the way that robots robotics might be able to help with radiotherapy treatment that's coming later but am i alone did you both know all about unconventional computing well i wouldn't exactly say i knew all about it but i did know that there was an unconventional computing lab at ue and i did know that they work with things like slime mold as a way of thinking about computing power and novel approaches to computing I have to admit, I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> I'm not sure what the benefit of a slime mold based computer would be. Um, so, I, you know, to, to what extent this is really just blue skies um, exploring something interesting and novel or a different way about a way of thinking about biology and to what extent this is actually moving towards computing remains a little bit to be determined for me. I'm similar, yeah. I, I also knew there was a lab um, but knew very little about what they do. Well, Science Chatters is all about the opportunity to peer behind the doors here at the university and see what is going on in these research labs that we have. So here's Gemma Kerr reporting from the Unconventional Computing Lab. Robots made of frog cells, space rovers made of mould, and wires made of slime. These all sound like things out of science fiction, but are real developments being made in the field of science called unconventional computing. But what is unconventional computing and what is it for? I went to the Unconventional Computing Lab at UWE to see some of the unusual experiments going on and have a chat with Dr Richard Main. Unconventional computing is the search for new materials, new methods and new applications for computing technologies. We can use unconventional computing as a method to understand life processes a little bit better. So when we do this, we can abstract certain living systems as what we call black boxes. So something's happening on the inside, we don't really understand the process, but as long as we understand one end and the other, that's kind of like the main thing. When we use the language of computing, that's sort of like a ubiquitous language. It's just something to relate cause and effect. Ones and zeros at its base. But living things don't communicate with ones and zeros. So what causes and effects are used? electrical input output okay. so we stimulate something with a bit of a zap and then we read the corresponding zap that comes out of it researchers can also use light food and growth as indicators so what types of life can be used this is very much 
where the imagination of the researcher comes in. If something exists and it has energy and it interacts with anything else, you can consider that process as computation in one way or another. So we might have individual cells, we might have stuff we've grabbed out of cells, we might have a whole organism. So the beauty of working with uh, whole organisms like slime mold is they just do their thing. They just work in a way that we can interpret as computing, whether or not we interact with them or not. In fact, a lot of experiments we try to interfere with it as little as possible so that we're re recording just natural life processes, just information processing. It senses food in its environment. The response to that computation is, I want to move over there, so I'm going to do it. At the moment, living organisms such as slime mould and fungi are the most frequently used. But could unconventional computing end up using human cells? Potentially, yes. When you start talking about augmenting human cells, there's two main branches. There's augmentative, which is making it better than it already is, and there's regenerative, which is fixing it. And in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, that sort of thing, they're associated with nerve cells not functioning quite like they should um, or getting broken down. So if, for example, we can find a way of upregulating or changing or just modifying the behaviour slightly of these cells. I mean, potentially, do we have a novel insight to therapies here? As exciting as these possibilities are, for many people, the use of life in experiments can bring up ethical concerns. Is this becoming an issue for researchers? I've worked with a lot of organisms, so I keep mentioning slime mould. I've worked with pond organisms called paramecia. I've worked with subcellular organelles that you can extract from these things. Uh, I've worked with loads of forms of algae. None of these things are considered to be uh, on any lists where people are worried about us killing them. Um, in fact, you know, if you drink a pint of beer, you kill probably trillions of yeast cells. I mean, pe if people are happy with that, they don't seem to care about using algae and things for experiments. You're always going to have problems as you step this up. Um, I feel that for every scientific experiment you do, you just need to have adequate justification. Um, I feel that single-celled organisms, or what are otherwise considered to be lower forms of life, it's the first rung on the ladder. I feel that once we've guided our experiments enough to actually make it worthwhile working with human cells and things, then we will have a very clear ethical case for doing so. So where could this all go long term? Could we end up in a future where all computers are made with living components? I don't think that every single conventional computer will be replaced with something biological or something quantum necessarily along those lines. I think that as the technologies advance, we're going to be realising more and more new ways that we can apply this. So things like machine learning, big data, I mean, all of these buzzwords, I mean, all we are doing with these is we are putting these data into structures that are designed to resemble the human brain and nervous system and looking at how it gets reorganised. Okay, so we're currently using computers to try and mimic, on a very small scale, the way in which a human brain works. As we start to understand this more, as we start to unlock the potentials of the human cells, I think that this is going to become more prevalent in everyday life, and it's almost definitely going to permeate things that we can't even consider now. So I thought it was really interesting to think about computing in such a broad way. I hadn't really ever thought about biological cells or organisms as being computers. But yeah, really novel area to think about. And, and Richard and Gemma touched on ethics briefly. And I, I wonder how many people really realise how extensively some areas of scientific and medical research kind of consider um, ethics, you know, right down to the level of individual cells and uh human tissue obviously and the extension of animals in all sorts of way 
ways through research and for scientists and researchers really kind of working at the cutting edge and in blue horizon research areas i think kind of envisaging some of those ethical dilemmas that might emerge out of their research is probably a really challenging uh, thing to do so that for me as a science communicator was quite an interesting thing in the interview well yes it is a a, a slightly um peculiar area of ethics shall we say not one that i'd thought about before but there are areas of ethics which are more in the forefront of of research and people's minds and one of those is is robotics more widely and here at ue we have a professor alan winfield who is professor of robot ethics and he and emma whitecamp were commissioned by the european parliament to produce a report on the ethics of artificial intelligence Perhaps we could talk about that after we hear from another of our science communication students doing the Masters here at UWE. Chloe Rakes looks into the ways that robots might be able to help in cancer treatments. In the UK, one in two people will be diagnosed with cancer during their lifetime, with Cancer Research UK estimating that one person is diagnosed every two minutes. Currently, cancer treatments cover three main branches, surgery, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. However, with so many people living with cancer, new and innovative treatments are constantly being funded and developed. Brachytherapy is a form of internal radiotherapy whereby small radioactive metal seeds are precisely implanted into the tumour using a specialised needle. What makes it so beneficial is that it targets and kills the cancerous tissues, causing minimal damage to healthy tissues compared with other radiotherapy techniques. It also reduces the trauma and recovery times for each patient. With increasing numbers of people being diagnosed with cancer each year, the pressure on doctors and medical facilities is high. So finding a way to help medical staff cope with the demands is a top priority. And this is where robots might be able to step in. What would you say if your surgeon came to tell you that their assistant in the operating theatre would be a robot? Recent developments in technology have allowed scientists to design robots that can assist medical professionals with this highly accurate procedure with hopes of further minimising the damage to the body. It is also intended to reduce the pressure on medical staff by taking over some of the workload. I sat down with Athanasios Motropoulos, a PhD student at the Bristol Robotics Laboratory, to discuss why robots are the answer. Doctors cannot achieve the required levels of accuracy all the times. So it's really common to penetrate the human tissue 10 or 20 times until you, you achieve the required accuracy. And you know that robots are really precise. So if you can model the, the problem properly and if you have uh, a good uh, visual feedback, then, then the levels of accuracy that you can achieve are way better than doctors. This robot will be used in a technique called robot-assisted needle steering to deliver the radioactive seeds into the body. The needle that is being steered by the robot has superior flexibility and can move through the body in ways that a surgeon cannot achieve alone. It can also reach parts of the body, like those behind bone or delicate organs, that would otherwise need large surgical operations to gain access to. Doctors use this needle to do some operations like brachytherapy and this needle is a, is a flexible one so it can go inside the human tissue and deform and when you want to do like a robotic assisted needle procedure what you do is trying to define the control inputs to the needle and by control inputs I mean how you rotate it and how you tra translate the needle when you insert it in order to drive it in the, in the predefined goal. 
Breast, prostate, lung and bowel cancers are the most commonly diagnosed cancers in the UK. As these areas are particularly delicate, this robotic-assisted needle steering procedure, once adapted and programmed with the finer details, can be used to treat them. You can do this procedure in every place in the human body that you have soft tissue. So the common places would be in the prostate, in the human breasts and in the brain. However, it doesn't sound like this feat of robotic engineering will be in charge of the surgery room anytime soon. In the future, if this thing can be like fully automated, technically doctors will not be needed, but I don't think that we are getting there. I mean, you will always need uh, human intervention, intervention in everything. So I think a doctor will always be there because you just cannot take him out of the operation. And I think that it's, he is useful. Like, if something happens, he is there to intervene and, and solve uh, the problem. For now, robot-assisted procedures can improve surgical accuracy by aiding surgeons rather than completely replacing them. Using this new robotic technique, radiotherapy treatments are targeted with greater accuracy, meaning that less healthy tissue will be damaged in the process. Nearly one-third of UK patients undergo some form of radiotherapy treatment, so technology developments in this field are crucial to minimising the physical and emotional challenges that cancer patients experience. With robots and surgeons working together, the ability to intervene and react as and when necessary will allow operations to be performed that were just not possible before. I was really struck by the idea of using a robot for such targeted therapy. It seems to me that's one of the really good ways in which you could make use of robotics technology without de-skilling staff. So I think there's, there was quite an interesting discussion there about the fact that you would always need to have the surgeon present. Um, and I think it kind of goes beyond that. It's not just having the surgeon present. What the, what the robot is doing is um, improving on physical accuracy, on accuracy of targeting, um, which is really fine motor control. Surgeons have fantastic physical accuracy, I'm sure but they are human and, um, and what they really add is the creative and analytical skills uh, that go towards understanding that individual patient. Um, and fantastic if that robot can then go in and minimize the damage in applying the, that radiotherapy. So for me, this was one of the really interesting and useful ways in which robots can contribute to society. I think it's the use of the term robot in this technology is, is quite an interesting thing to think about and in terms of the surgical context and kind of what happens in an operating theatre I think it's still a really unknown space for a lot of people and patients um, despite the fact that you're given information in quite general terms about what what might happen to you in that operating theatre often it's still really kind of manual surgery in some cases uh, kind of scary you know difficult to conceptualize and think about if you know in real detail and so I think in terms of how this technology might really be advanced and used probably not thinking about it as a robot but another extension of the health technology I would imagine is a bit more reassuring uh, for some people that might be encountering this in their own healthcare provision. I'd like to think as a patient if I needed it I'd be excited but also, <laughs> I am also aware that in those situations, you, you want to be reassured as much as possible, don't you? And if somebody says, well, we've got these robots, they're tiny little robots. 
I'm not sure how comfortable I feel with it. It's that classic thing about perceptions of robots often connecting into science fiction images um, and the reality being quite different. So mm. I, I wonder how much um, surgeons and uh, doctors themselves are using that terminology when they might be describing it to patients in their communication. Uh, so for that, that for me as a science communicator is something that's quite interesting to think about. Mm. Yeah. No, I think this does raise a number of other issues, and they're issues that were touched on in our um, in our report, which was titled "Ethical Concerns and Moral Issues in Artificial Intelligence," um, and that's around um, it's around perceptions, but it's also around um, risks and and what are the the risks of increasing use of technology. And, and while I think personally I'm quite comfortable in the medical area, and um, when we were looking at our report, we were addressing um, big challenges such as de-skilling of the workforce and um, and the quality of work and questions that have kind of come up also during the pandemic about what kind of work do we want to go back to um, for those people who've unfortunately been furloughed or um, or where uh, jobs you know jobs have have been lost in um, in some sectors you know it's sort of thinking about quality and quality of work and and to what extent can robots uh, move into spaces which are poor quality work, so replacing you know, low skill work, um, but not replacing those more satisfying roles. This piece for me also made me think about uh, a current PhD student who I'm working with, Helen Whitfield-Williams. Her research is looking at clinical engineering as a career pathway for young people. And it originally was focused on the fact that there is quite a lack of understanding of careers in that area. And what we've seen with COVID-19 is much more awareness of the use of things like ventilators in our healthcare systems, which are obviously maintained by clinical engineers. And so I think it's interesting to see as COVID-19 develops and our understanding of sort of change healthcare system as a result of that continues, um, how we might think about the use of technology in the NHS and healthcare, perhaps in different ways uh, to the past. So this interview also reminded me of some of those issues at the moment. Far be it for me to plug another podcast, but I've just made the Physics World Stories podcast about medical physics. And it was fascinating for me to talk to people who are involved in physics in healthcare. It's not something that, like robotics, it's not something you necessarily think of being part of healthcare. And it's absolutely fascinating. I spoke to three people from the Christie Hospital in Manchester which is uh, one of the biggest cancer hospitals in Europe if not the biggest and uh, well if you want to hear that go to another podcast Physics World Stories but I'm interested in the ethics of artificial intelligence because there are these angles but there are also the angles in terms of them being used in in warfare is that in the report? It is indeed yeah the report's a, a long and comprehensive report exploring everything from kind of workplace issues, uh, quality of work, financial issues, financial crime, uh, warfare through into healthcare so really trying to uh, allow policymakers to start to think about what kind of regulation might be appropriate um, as this really fast moving and emerging field um, starts to get going and we also reviewed what's out there already so it's it's a comprehensive report available from the european parliament so if people want to find the report we'll yeah, post so links we to it. a link with it with the podcast brilliant we'll do that i'm assuming that the research from the from the phd student isn't available not yet no watch this space i think she's going to have a fascinating project at the end of it 
Well, look out for those links on the Science Chatters page on the UE Bristol website in the Science Communication Unit. Of course, you can find us just by searching for Science Chatters. Thank you very much indeed to Athanasios Metropolos, Dr Richard Main, Chloe Rakes and Gemma Kerr for the interviews. And thank you very much indeed to Claire Wilkinson and Emma Whitecamp, as always, for joining me for Science Chatters. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Science Chatters.